It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. You are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up and welcome to another Monday edition of Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. I'm your Monday host, Jackson Gatlin, also host of Locked On Rockets right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Today, we'll be chatting with David Ramil from Locked On Heat. Is the Miami Heat take game two of the NBA Finals behind some blistering three-point shooting and impressive defense slowing down the Nuggets? How were the Heat able to close things out after trailing heading into the fourth quarter of game two? Then we'll be chatting with Cyrus Satsas from Locked On Warriors as the Golden State Warriors president of B-Ball Ops and general manager Bob Myers has decided to step down after 12 years and four rings. How does this impact the Warriors moving forward, especially with their pending free agency of Draymond Green? Lastly, we'll be joined by Kuka Hill from Locked On Pistons as the Detroit Pistons have hired Monty Williams as their next head coach, a six-year, $78.5 million deal. How will Monty elevate the Pistons and how does this change expectations for them moving forward? Now, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code locked on. That's prizepicks.com, promo code locked on. And as always, thank you so much for making Locked On NBA your first listen each and every day, free and available on all podcast platforms, including YouTube. Joining us now is the host of Locked on Heat, David Ramil. You can track down wherever you listen to your podcasts and on YouTube. Just search Locked on Heat. And David, the Miami Heat earn a hard-fought 111-108 finals game to win, handing the Nuggets their first home court loss of the postseason. Denver led in this game going into the fourth quarter, 83-75. How was Miami to take control there in the fourth and close out for this game to win? Well, they adjusted their defense a little bit. They took advantage of the non-Jokic minutes the way they had it in the first half of the game. And Duncan Robinson provided a hell of a spark. Bam Adebayo was also very, very good. And they got the Nuggets into foul trouble early on. So they were in the bonus and were able to continue to attack aggressive, uh, yeah, aggressively. They got uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope to, to bite in a couple of fakes. He also fouled Kyle Lowry from behind a three-point line. So it was a combination of different things. And then, of course, they were able to withstand a furious Nuggets comeback in the last couple of minutes of the game as well. Able to hang on, close it out, and win on the road. You get the split. That's as good as you could possibly hope for. The defense really was so impressive. Look, Jokic did have 41 points. It felt like he had to work hard for that 41, though. And then on top of that, limiting him to just four assists through a combination of blitzing, running the zone against Jokic, yep. which I thought was really genius. I mean, has has Spo maybe found the recipe for success in guarding Nikola Jokic? I think it works in one game, but you trust that the Nuggets can come up with something else. This is a very different game plan for both teams in game two than it was in game one. And the Nuggets, I think, are good enough. And Jokic is so talented that he can kill you from a number of ways. I thought the attack strategy going into the series might be to let Jokic get his and make sure you limit those kind of passes because he's so good at finding cutters, finding guys from the perimeter, etc. And I think they did that to a certain degree, much more effectively, certainly, than they did in game one. I don't know if it's 
something that they can continue to sustain at the same time. Again, I think the Nuggets can find little tweaks here and there. They struggle a little bit from their three-point shooting. Not that much, but Miami got some incredibly hot shooter shooting. You, you never want to rely on those kinds of things yet. This is exactly what Miami's done. If they can get some hot shooting going, drag the game a little bit the way they did in the fourth quarter, that keeps things even enough where they can mount these comebacks. They've done it throughout the whole postseason. So it might just be the recipe, but at the same time, I don't know how sustainable it is. Miami had the hot shooting in this game, which is, oh, is yeah. maybe a bit hard to replicate over the course of, you know, trying to win four games. But a big reason for some of the shots that they were getting was Jimmy Butler with the drive and kick game in this one. Nine assists, only one turnover. How impressed were you with his ability to just generate offense for the Heat over the course of this game? Well, that's just Jimmy. Uh, still a little concerned about his offensive approach in terms of not looking for his shot. I thought he'd need to kind of step that up a little bit for Miami to have a much better chance, but he still commands so much respect on those drives. I'm glad you pointed it out. And as a playmaker, he's still so underrated and he's been very, very good at finding other players. And they were able to capitalize on a lot of those opportunities. You saw a lot of wide open looks, whether it was Max Drews, Duncan Robinson, anybody else from the perimeter, and they were able to capitalize. So Jimmy as a playmaker has certainly been a, a strong weapon for Miami. And I would expect that to be the, the, the case moving forward too. How much are we maybe attributing the lack of aggression from Jimmy, mm. if you will, offensively to just overall fatigue. Cause there was even a play late in the game. Jokic gets the offensive rebound, kicks it out to Jamal Murray and Jimmy like saw this developing in real time. And he was just, he like jogged out to Jamal Murray when he drilled that three pointer off that kick out. And I kind of sat there thinking to myself, man, like that's not like Jimmy to jog out to a three pointer in, in crunch time of a finals game. So how much of this are we just going to attribute to fatigue at this point for Jimmy? I don't know how much fatigue is a factor because we've seen Jimmy kind of rise to the occasion, especially in fourth quarters throughout the whole postseason run. But I think the lingering impact of the ankle injury is still there. He's just not explosive. He's not able to get to his spots. His jumper seems a little flat, even on his three point attempts of which he hit a couple today, especially one big one down the stretch. He's kind of flailing his legs a little bit, kicking out a little bit, trying to look for a little bit, just extra lift because he just doesn't have it. So maybe it's a combination of things. He's been tasked with so much offensively, defensively as a playmaker, and then to be able to be the you know Miami's top scorer as well as they're looking for him to be. I, I think it's just too much for him to handle right now. And look, he, he, there are no excuses. He'll never point to the injury as a reason for why he's struggling offensively. At the same time, he did just enough to kind of power through it. Bam Adebayo in this game mm. was a tale of two halves, whatever cliche you want to throw at it, right? First yeah. half, uh, settling for a lot of jumpers, even over smaller defenders, didn't really look aggressive, then goes off in the second half. What was the biggest difference aside from just kind of the aggression in, in how Bam played in the two halves, do you think, in this game? Well, I think they kind of used him differently in the pick and roll a little bit. Um, he was working with Max Struess pretty effectively. A lot of give and goes there. The synergy between him and Duncan has been so effective. And as with Miami's three-point shooting being so stellar, it opened up so much more space for him to attack. They caught Denver unaware on a lot of mismatches. He was able to find the seams in the defense and just attack much more aggressively. But it's all the little things that Bam does. As, as much as his scoring is going to be a focus, I hope that fans across the nation can appreciate what he brings to the table uh, because he's just such a good screen setter. He does so much in the rebounding end on the, as a playmaker, as a defender. There he is picking up Jamal Murray. There he is picking up Nikola Jokic on, on you know separate possessions. And he just does it all for this Miami Heat team in a way that I don't think a lot of people appreciate because the, the counting stats don't really pop out much. He doesn't do much in that regard, not necessarily in terms of like, oh, they're all-stars. And yet it's all the different little aspects of the game that he's so good at contributing to and making a strong impact for. And I think we're seeing that in the biggest stage.
We're going to have to start counting uh, Bam Adebayo screen assists. Shout out, shout yes. out to our, our, our fearless leader, David Locke, and his affinity for screen assists. Uh, last one here for you, David. Kevin Love played mm. 22 minutes, returned to the lineup, but was plus 18 in his time for the Heat. What did his return really unlock or do for Miami in this game? A little bit more spacing, uh, obviously. Uh, you know, Caleb Martin has been shooting very well, although he struggled in game one, continues to struggle in game two. So I think Love is just a, a more natural threat from the three-point line. Obviously, you saw a couple of his outlet passes opening things up for Miami, and he just draws a defender out, so allows Jimmy or Bam to attack the paint. Not as they were hitting a lot, but I think it just creates a little bit more balance offensively. Uh, his rebounding was pretty solid. He was also another big that they could stash onto Aaron Gordon. I like the way that he was defending as well. At least that he was kind of sagging off Aaron Gordon, leaving him to the corner a little bit, providing that help defense, especially in the first half when Nikola Jokic was trying to be a little bit more aggressive as a scorer and creating that kind of space where he's a body between Jokic and those three-point shooters, limiting those passes out to the perimeter. So I think he did a really, really good job considering his age and everything else he's still a positive factor and they look much more comfortable when love out in the lineup i thought going to the series that caleb should have been the starter just because he was playing so well and against the boston celtics but considering that he's sick and that he might be a little bogged down by injury too he just hasn't been as much of a factor as he was in the eastern conference finals put kevin love out there it's a plus factor whenever he's out there you don't have to put him out there for a lot of minutes in fact i'd like to see him even more, though, because the Cody Zeller minutes are almost unwatchable from the Heat perspective. So put Love in there as a backup center and have him go to work a little bit. I think that will be the, the, the strategy moving forward. I'm curious to see how both teams respond in game three. Miami takes game two in the finals. How do things develop as the series shifts down to South Beach for a full breakdown on this game and more? You'll have us covered over at Locked on Heat. David, I appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with me. Anytime. Coming up, Warriors president and GM Bob Myers decides to step down. Why now and how does this impact the Warriors moving forward? We're going to get there in just one moment. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. Next game, how about Nikola Jokic to score more than 26.5 points? What about Bam Adebayo to have less than 10.5 rebounds? How about Jimmy Butler to have more than 6.5 assists? Or what about Jamal Murray to have less than 3.5 three-pointers made? So, what is Price Picks? It's daily fantasy sports, but how does it work? Basically, you pick two to six players, but they score more or less than their Price Picks projection. You can win up to 25 times back on your money on any entry that you submit. There's no competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections available. And Price Picks offers projections on any sport that you watch. That's the NBA Finals, NFL, MLB, NHL. They've got you covered for everything. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that simple. They're safe. They offer fast withdrawals. Currently operational in over 30 states and Canada. And right now, during the finals, one PrizePix user will win a chance at becoming a millionaire. But you have to download the app to find out how. So download the PrizePix app or go to prizepix.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code Locked On. That means if you deposit $100, PrizePix will give you $100. If you deposit $50, PrizePix will give you $50. So don't forget to enter promo code Locked On at sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. The NBA playoffs are right around the corner, and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. 
And continuing on here at Locked On NBA Monday. As always, thanks so much for making Locked On NBA a part of your day every single day. Be sure to stay tuned in throughout the week as we have you covered for all of the NBA Finals action right here at Locked On NBA. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Warriors, Cyrus Sot. So you can track down wherever you listen to your podcast and on YouTube. Just search Locked On Warriors. And Cyrus, you had the scoop on this before anybody else that longtime Warriors president and general manager Bob Myers will be stepping down, leaving the organization after 12 years. Let's start. I mean, why now? Why did Bob Myers ultimately decide it was time to step away from the franchise? Well, it started with uh, contract negotiations that wasn't going smooth. Uh, Joe Lacob has a tendency to initiate all negotiations with a lowball offer. Uh, case in point, when Stephen Curry was due for his Supermax, uh, Lacob initiate, initiated that negotiation with a four-year deal, to which Stephen Curry and his reps were like, what? Uh, so eventually he got to five years and he got the money. Uh, in Bob Meyer's case, uh there's a very strong possibility for what I'd heard that if the initial offer was uh, the, the offer he wanted, which is a max, he wanted to be the highest paid GM in the game. Uh, that was not the original offer. That was not the second offer even that came in. And since then, uh, the negotiations were shut down. And as the season went along, uh, from what every indication tells, Myers really started to uh, have second thoughts about the time he's spending away from his family. He has three young daughters with his uh, wife, who a former Laker uh, cheerleader, by the way, uh, which I do think is important in this discussion, given you're, you're choosing to step away as the leader of the Golden State Warriors. That's what he's stepping away to. He has probably more money than he ever needs in his life. He has a resume that uh, stands almost alone. Very few other executives could could present a resume like his. Um, you know, and he's got this beautiful family. So, and, and also you got to look at the Warriors themselves. They're about to enter a fascinating crossroads where things could go south in a hurry. And so Myers probably looked at that as well and thought, why not just step away now? It's a good time. So here we are. So, I mean, should this be looked at as kind of a, a big time fumble by Warriors ownership then? Or because even if, you know, we, we've seen this. I'll, I'll be honest. We've seen this excuse before. Daryl Morey used the excuse of wanting to spend more time with his family back when he decided to leave the Houston Rockets, as it was very evident that they were going to be heading into kind of the the dark ages of a rebuilding process with James Harden wanting out. And then less than a month after he left the Rockets organization, he got scooped up by the Philadelphia 76ers. So should we be bracing ourselves for seeing Bob Myers potentially picked up by another organization somewhere else who is willing to shell out the money for him? I would be shocked if it happened this offseason. I do think there is some genuineness to him wanting to spend time with his family and step away from the game. Uh, I mean, we've seen coaches and execs do this where they step away, they just never come back. They never want to. I mean, they, they've had their fill. It, it is a stressful job. It is a, it is almost like a marriage in and of itself. I mean, you're you're committed to this thing 24-7. You probably sleep it. You're probably dreaming it. I wouldn't. Sh- it wouldn't shock me if he ever came out and said that. Um, it would, so it would surprise me a lot if he took another job right away. I know people have alluded to the Clippers job, um, being open, him reuniting with Jerry West. I, I think he's going to take that year off. I mean, and, and see what happens from there. Now, if, if he does take a job right away, that will tell me that this was, this was a lake up thing and he wanted to get away from, from his owner, uh, who look, I mean, he, this is an owner who won four championships, but he also, uh, can be meddling. Um, you know, his son, Kirk Lacob, it will probably be elevated to president of basketball operations. Uh, we're seeing sort of a Jerry Jones situation here with the Warriors. And a lot of fans are very concerned about that. 
Um, but realistically, we're probably going to see a year off for Bob Myers. I know he started some podcasts that no one listens to, but uh, so maybe he's having fun with that. But I, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't, it would surprise me if we saw him somewhere else. I, I know you just mentioned Lake of Sun there and how he might be elevated to the uh, president of B-Ball Ops position. Uh, Myers was kind of in the unique position where he held both titles, right? And that's, you know, there's very few, you know, executives who actually hold both titles around the league. There's a lot of organizations that have a president and then a general manager in their two separate positions, multiple voices in the room. If that's the case moving forward, you know, are there any names kind of on the preliminary horizon that the Warriors might be looking at to replace Myers, at least in the general manager role? If that's the, if that's the name that you think they're going to be tapping to be the new president of B-Ball Ops? My answer to that is I wish, um, you know, one name that I've been, that I would love to have come in is Brent Barry, uh, who has been with the Spurs for a number of years now. And I bring his name up because back in 2019, uh, first of all, Bob Myers didn't hold both titles initially. He earned that through the years. Um, and, and so what's likely going to happen is who, what, they're going to have two people in position, one as president of ops, one as general manager. And my my guess is Kirk Lakel will take the president of operations job. And then Mike Dunleavy Jr., who's currently one of the assistant GMs, will take over the general manager position. Uh, Joe Lakeham has said he wants to keep it in-house. He even alluded to that um, in the press conference. The press conference, by the way, it's worth noting that Lakeham did not need to be up there with Bob Myers, by the way. That was, that, that was a symbol, I think, of of what Bob Myers has dealt with during his time with the Warriors. You have an owner who loves the attention and, and that's part of it that uh, he, he seems to uh, cherish. Um, but, but again, I bring up Brent Berry because back in 2019, Bob Myers decided he wanted to hire a, a, a right-hand man and Brent was his pick. The ownership loved him as well, but Brent viewed it as a, as a lateral move. Um, his family is settled in San Antonio. They didn't want to really leave. So he turned it down and they went with Mike Dunleavy Jr., who's now probably going to take the GM position. And then Kirk Lake will take uh, a president of basketball operations. And part of that, too, is so that the nepotism uh, criticism might be shielded uh, because the GM is usually much more upfront. He's the one holding the press conferences. He's the one dealing with media. Your president of basketball operations is more behind the scenes. Um, so if, if from an image perspective, which I think plays into this, that's what you'll see happen is you'll see Kirk take over as, as president and then Mike Dunleavy Jr. take over as GM. Uh, how that's going to go, I can, I don't know anyone who could tell you just because Dunleavy's never been in that position before. Kirk Laker has never been in charge. So these are curious times in Dove Nation. And you mentioned, right, they're, they're kind of entering this very uh... – precarious crossroads, if you will, this upcoming offseason. And you have Myers, who was a very well-respected general, you know, you know, executive around the league and, you know, com commanded the respect of his peers, players, agents, coaching staff, all of that, right? And so how, I mean, how does this really impact kind of this offseason, especially for the Warriors moving forward, especially with the looming free agency of Draymond Green and trying to figure out kind of what direction the franchise is going to go next? The Warriors are in a lot of trouble. And, and I think that's a huge reason why Myers left. Maybe not huge, but I think that played into it. The Warriors are in a spot right now with this new, this new CBA punished any team that likes to spend and spends big. And the Warriors are in that position largely because of their own draft picks and re-signing them over and over again uh, to these, to these big deals. But the Warriors are in a spot right now where they're not going to have a mid-level exception. Uh, they're not going to be able to sign any veteran for more than a, a minimum deal. And that's only because the CBA allows it. So the only way they can improve is by trade. 
And you're probably going to see that. But here's another conundrum that the Warriors face. Ownership has come out and said publicly they don't want to spend over $400 million on payroll. They're projected right now, if they keep everyone in, in place, add the 19th pick in the draft, add some veteran minimum deals to fill out the roster, and they're not going to go over 14 probably, um, you're looking at a $490 million payroll. So not only does the next GM uh, have to try to resurrect this team and, and maintain championship contender status, but you also have to shave off $90 million, and you have to do so uh, with, with, with a system where your trades have to match within 75% salary-wise, uh, it, it's there's going to be some difficult choices to be made. So there's a very strong possibility Bob Myers saw this and was like, you know what, I've had a good run. <laughs> Let someone else deal with this mess that's, that's down the plate. For a full breakdown on what Bob Myers stepping down from his position with the Warriors means, you'll have us covered for all of that and more over at Locked On Warriors. Cyrus, I appreciate you stopping by Locked On NBA with me. Thank you, sir. Coming up, the Detroit Pistons have secured Monty Williams as their next head coach. Who in Detroit benefits the most from the Monty Williams hire? How does he change expectations for the Pistons moving forward? We're going to get there in just one moment. The NBA playoffs are right around the corner, and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And final segment here at Locked On NBA Monday. As always, thank you so much for making Locked On NBA part of your day every single day. Free and available wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Pistons, Kuka Hill. You can track down wherever you listen to your podcasts and on YouTube. Just search Locked On Pistons. And Koo, the Pistons coming away with a pretty gigantic hire here in Monty Williams as their next head coach. Six years, $78.5 million. We're going to get into the contract here in just a moment, but let's start off with what does hiring Monty mean for the direction and the future of the Pistons as an organization? Um, I don't know if it changes really what... I mean, at this point, we don't even know what exactly their plans are for next year. They haven't really been completely transparent and out, you know, outgoing about what exactly their goal is and their plan is for next year. We don't know if they're going to go more development still, try to push a little bit more into winning. Like We don't really know what their plan is right now. And I don't think Monty, the signing of Monty, changes whatever their plan was before he hired because of the length of his contract. It makes me believe that he's been given... Um, a lot of security and, and and it makes me feel like that there's not a lot of pressure on him to win immediately because of the length of the contract. He's not going to be forced to have to do that immediately, that that's something that they want to kind of build towards. Um, so I don't know if it really is changing anything, but I guess we'll see. Early in the coaching search, it kind of looked like the Pistons were focusing on some maybe some more some unproven candidates, maybe some guys without necessarily previous head coaching experience, kind of looking at, you know, various assistant pools, that kind of thing. And then they switched up and went with Monty. Why the change up? Um, well, nice way to say it is that they opened their eyes a little bit, but, um, a lot of us, a lot of us in the Pistons community were not huge fans of what, you know, the pool that they were bringing back. Charles Lee's fine. Um, but you know, if they wanted to go the assistant coach route, a lot of us felt like that at least 
they said multiple times they were turning every stone. It didn't feel like they were turning every stone. It felt like they were only interviewing assistant coaches that have never been coaches before uh, or head coaches before. They never they weren't interviewing any of the top candidates on the market, any of the top head coach, former head coaches on the market. Um, and then, of course, they had the whole Kevin Ollie thing who just signed with Brooklyn as the assistant coach. Um, so I, we're happy that they went with Monty Williams. Um, he was, I think he was one of the, one of, if not the best coach on the market at the time of their hiring. Um, but there's a whole story of how that ended up happening. He said no at first. And then Tom Gores, the Pistons owner went out there and was like, yeah, how about no, how about we keep going for him? Flies him out to his house in California, offers him obviously the biggest contract in NBA history for a coach. Um, he's the highest paid coach in the NBA. Uh, that's going to be hard to turn down. So, they really wanted Monty Williams. It seems like Tom Gores, the Pistons owner, really wanted Monty Williams more than anybody, and they they went and made it happen. And breaking down kind of the factors on that deal, right? $78.5 million, six years. It does look like Monty is going to have kind of a lot of runway, I guess, to work with over these next few years. It doesn't seem like that's not a contract you hand out with the expectation of, okay, if you're not winning in a year or two, you're going to get canned. How much credit does ownership get then for kind of securing this and making this deal happen with Monty to kind of identify, hey, he's our guy. We really want him. We're going to go out there and get him no matter how much it costs. I mean, the Pistons ownership, there's some things you can say about him outside of the Pistons organization. There's some things maybe he's involved in that a lot of people aren't very happy about. He shouldn't really be involved. Like, this is not talking about him as the person or what he's doing outside the Pistons organization. But Tom Gores has been show, has been very willing to put the money where his mouth is. He spent a lot of money to go get Stan Van Gundy, I believe, in 2014. He spent a lot of money to go convince Dwayne Casey to become their head coach after winning coach of the year and then getting fired by Toronto. He spent a lot of money to get him here. And then he spent a lot of money to get Monty Williams here. So Tom Gores, if nothing else, I mean, he I feel like he kind of does what you want your team owner to do. Spend money when he needs to. Be be willing to spend money and want to team want the team to win. Obviously, the team hasn't been great over the last decade plus since they traded Chauncey for Allen Iverson back in 09. Uh, but Tom Gores has been willing to spend money. He spent money um We've seen it happen multiple times, and he did it here at Monty Williams. He definitely – it sounds like, at least according to the reports and how everything went down, that he definitely was like a the biggest factor in making this happen for Monty Williams. Koo, who on the Pistons benefits the most in your eyes from hiring Monty Williams, from bringing him in the door? I think it's every single one of the Piston guards. When you talk about Kay Cunningham, obviously, their franchise guy. You got Jane Ivey, obviously, and even their backup, Killian Hayes. I think every single – the thing about Monty Williams that makes all of us Pistons, everyone in the Pistons community excited is that he's coming from a spot in Phoenix where everything was built around two guards. Their, their two guards were their like main focus. Now, obviously, they trade for KD, and that kind of changed things for 13 games, I think it was, that they played together. But for the majority of his time there with CP and D-Book, their offense was focused around two guards that really they ran everything through them and everything happened because of them. And I don't know if there's many teams in the NBA that do that. The Pistons are one of them. Their their core is uh, Kay Cunningham and Jane Ivey. And I've watched a lot of a lot of videos talking about and breaking down the, the Suns offense and just the ways that Monty found ways to, you know, put his guards and have everything run through them and put them in the best positions possible to really, you know, space the floor out um, and, and get put them in the spots that they need to be at. I think that's what's going to help them the most, uh, the Pistons, the most uh, when Monty gets here. So Cade, I feel like, operates in a lot of the same areas that D-Book does and, and CP does in the mid-range, high post area, getting downhill, picking his spots kind of thing. Not explosive athlete or anything like that, but picks his spots, that kind of thing with Cade. 
Um, and then Jane Ivy, I think he can help with him, obviously. Um, and then even Killian Hayes, Killian Hayes, someone who kind of operates in the same spots as CP3 kind of likes to operate in the mid range as well. I feel like there's going to be a lot of comfortability there. And I think Monty will do a great job of trying to put them in the best position possible and elevate them like he did for Devin Booker. Um, like we saw him take those big steps over the last few years with Monty. I know you hit on this a little bit earlier on, but you know, with the expectations kind of going into next season or navigating this offseason and moving forward for the Pistons, I mean, what even if you don't really know necessarily what the expectations are going to look like right now, what should the expectations look like? What do you think would be the right direction or the right approach to, say, next season with, with Monty Williams now in that head coaching position? I think the best approach would be to be patient and continue to let your young guys develop. If the Pistons' young guys I were in a position where they had shown immediate improvement, looked like they were ready to play actual winning basketball, not just, oh, good basketball for their age, but like actual NBA winning basketball, then I'd be okay. Like, okay, you want to go out and try to push for some wins this year? Okay, that makes sense. They're ready. The Pistons' young guys aren't ready. Their franchise guys coming off an injury didn't even get to play his second year. So I don't feel like any of those guys are ready. They have another top pick in the draft. They're all incredibly young, 21 years and under. They went and traded for James Wiseman, who's a guy they traded for knowing that he needs reps if he's going to become anything. Jalen Duran was just the youngest player in the entire NBA. Like this team is just, they're not ready yet to try to, you know, really win a ton of games. Now they won 17 games last year. I think the expectation should be to try to get around 33 wins next year. Because the idea would be like if Cade actually played, maybe he gives you like five more wins. And last year actually would have been like a 22, 23 maybe win. And now that, you know, instead of like a 16, 17 win jump, you're really looking at like a 10, 10 game jump. So I think 33 wins should be the bar trying to fight for the play-in game, not make it, but kind of fight for it should be the bar. Kind of be the example I've used in the podcast is be next year's Orlando Magic. Like this past year, Orlando Magic, you saw clear progression from a lot of their guys. You see the core, you see the future, you see the vision, you see the, what their foundation is. You know that they're a team coming up because they've shown improvement. And they were fighting for a lot of the year to try to make the play, and they didn't eventually make it. But everyone, I feel like, is high on Orlando Magic because of what they showed, despite the fact they didn't make the plan. Basically, the Pistons next year need to be that. That should be the expectation for them next year. How will Monty Williams as head coach change the Detroit Pistons? For all that and more, you'll have us covered over at Locked On Pistons. Koo, I appreciate you stopping by Locked On NBA with me. Appreciate you. And that's going to do it for another Monday edition of Locked On NBA. As always, thank you so much for checking out the show. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, the Odyssey app, free and available on all podcast platforms. We're also available on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, search Locked On NBA. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. But as always, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to having you back right here at Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.